Thank you, Lexi. Morning, folks. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a, a new or visiting, a special welcome to you. Um, I am encouraged to see so much of our uh, service already directed towards the idea of prayer, and this really is the big end of the passage. And in fact, I'm, I'm very happy to see uh, our prayer night, our combined church's prayer night happening. That's a third year in a row that um, someone from WEC has managed to be able to organise that. It's excellent. Please make sure you get along there. Oh, youth church. I always forget you guys. Off you go. Um, and... Um, and actually, something else to be prayerfully thankful about is, and this is just hot off the press, we had our MTS fundraiser last night for Justin, who's doing an apprenticeship with us. And Sherry, who's very diligently been crunching the numbers as treasurer, has come up with that we raised uh, $20,000 for the first calendar year of Justin's uh, apprenticeship stuff, which is magnificent. That is a real answer to prayer. That is something we need to keep praying for and uh, actually um, praying that God will continue to use and grow and build Justin and build capacity in us through him. Uh, in fact, we're going to do that as we start. Let's pray as we come to this passage on prayer. Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your generosity to us, your generosity expressed in so many ways. We thank you for the opportunity to pray to you, to be able to commune with you in real personal ways to be able to bring before you all manner of our needs and our, um, our desires, our hurts, our trials, our triumphs. Uh, we thank you that you answer them in ways that are good for us. And we thank you, Father, for, uh, for Justin. We thank you for Justin and Millie and their decision to pursue um, vocational ministry in this, in this space through MTS. We thank you for the generosity of your people last night uh, that were able to raise up $20,000 for that first year of his uh, training. And we pray, Lord, that you would be using him uh, for your glory to grow your kingdom in this place. Uh, help us now as we think and as we approach your word, Lord. Uh, help us to know what is right and true and hold on to it and help us to adjust or drop what is false. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, folks, today, if you are joining us, we're at the last in our series on James and we come to what I think is arguably the most difficult section in the book of James. And I don't mean difficult in the sense that it's the most hard-hitting necessarily, and you could be forgiven for that, for thinking that might be the case. After all, for, or at least from my perspective, James has just felt like a series of clubbing blows one after the other as he continually addresses the sort of half-hearted, double-minded struggles that many of us, I think, have identified with being followers of Jesus living in a world pushing a very different agenda and a very different set of priorities. But I don't mean it this difficult in that sense. I mean it's difficult in the sense that understanding exactly what James is and is not teaching in this section is a little less straightforward than it has been in the other sections we've looked at so far. And that is absolutely true as it's played out in Christian history, um, in thought and, and in some radically different interpretations. Uh, there have been throughout the years, throughout the centuries, radically different interpretations that have spawned some wildly different practices and traditions by different groups of believers. And I think you'll probably realize most of the interpretational practical application differences revolve around the issue of physical sickness and healing, particularly miraculous healing. And that seems to get a lot of attention from this section of James. I mean, come on, let's be serious for a minute. How many of us on reading this for ourselves during the week or hearing Lexi read it just now, how many of us weren't immediately drawn to verse 15? where it says, and the prayer often in faith will make the sick person well, the Lord will raise them up. I mean, no sooner than hearing this, immediately a cascade of questions goes sort of tumbling through your mind, so much so that you can't quite remember what was said next. And I think it's understandable, especially if you are yourself sick or someone you care about is seriously ill. Verse 15 sticks out well, like a neon flashing sign. 
Because the statement seems so, well, it's so direct and matter of fact. It seems as though James is expecting only one result. The prayer offered in faith will make a sick person well, period, exclamation mark. Look at this, what I'm saying. That's what it feels like when you read it, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, I've got these questions abounding. Is this a blank check promise from God, you know, that, that, that I can just pray for healing and that it'll, it'll happen? Does it mean I can just pray cancer away like that? Hang on, but what about when I prayed for so-and-so and they didn't get better? They're still sick. Does that mean there's something wrong with my faith? Did I not use the right words? Was I not sitting in the right prayer posture when I prayed? And if James is so certain and he's speaking God's word here, then how come people are still dying of sickness? Has no one been praying? Or is God willing and not able? Or is he able and not willing? You can see how this sort of the questions start to pile up and like a snowball running down the hill that is gain size and speed. And it's not hard to sort of see how people quickly can spiral out of control in their own thinking, end up like Alice disappearing down the rabbit hole into a confusing new dimension of thoughts and ideas. Many have done that. Now, we need to answer some of those questions today, but to do this, I'm not going to sit up here and try to preempt every question you've had already and then systematically try to work through it. We'd never leave. Hey, I'm down for it, by the way. Like, let's, let's rip in. If you Just give me a bit of a show of hands and we'll do that. No. Rather, I want to remind you or perhaps teach you some principles for applying and understanding difficult passages like this. Principles that really do help clear the fog of confusion and land us on a much more solid foundation as we move forward towards rightly applying a passage like this. And hopefully this is not a, this is a, you know, remedial sort of stuff at this point, I hope. The first principle is this, we need to let scripture interpret scripture. What I mean by that is we must always ensure that we read, understand and apply the Bible in light of the whole counsel of God. In light of everything God has revealed by his spirit in his word. Because God is entirely consistent. James has even pointed this out to us already. Chapter 117, what does he say? God doesn't change like shifting shadows. He's entirely consistent. And so is his word. There is no contradiction in either. So we must come with that understanding, reading the Bible in the context of all that God has said. But hang on a minute, Tim. Isn't there plenty of contradictions in the Bible? Isn't there this one of the key arguments that non-believers will use, especially those who at least claimed once to follow Christ, that they stopped following Jesus because they couldn't overlook the glaringly inconsistent... Have you you heard that statement before? It's not an uncommon argument, and it can be quite unnerving the first time you hear it. But I want to encourage... It's simply not true. And if you actually ask that person for examples of the apparent contradictions in the Bible, what you'll find is never a case of God saying one thing to one person and an entirely different thing to another person. So it never becomes a case of pick your favorite prophet and go with him. No. In fact, it's always instead a matter of needing to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So when I read an apparent contradiction, the problem is my understanding or my interpretation, not the clarity or the consistency of God's word. That's first base. Let me really quickly give you a a classic example that we've already seen in the book of James. Chapter 2, verse 17. James said, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, it's dead. And then in verse 24, he said, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. But then when we read in Paul in Romans, it sounds like a complete contradiction, doesn't it? Romans 3, 28. He says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith 
apart from the work, apart from works of the law. This sounds like a classic contradiction, doesn't it? It sounds like Paul is teaching salvation by faith and James is teaching salvation by works. This is a clear case contradiction. Case closed. Is it? Well, not at all. In fact, both read in context with that principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture, we see that Paul and James are focusing on different aspects of salvation. Paul is speaking about the root of salvation which is in faith in Christ alone. And James is speaking about the fruit of salvation, i.e. what salvation naturally produces. It produces changed lives, good works. One leads to the other. They are not, faith and works are not mutually exclusive. One leads to the other. Faith, genuine faith, gives leads to good works. And good works are the evidence of genuine faith. It's root and fruit. There's no disagreement between Paul and James. But we only see this when we let Scripture interpret Scripture. We've got to do the same when we come to a sec- this section of James. We must recognise that and work from that right assumption that James isn't saying anything to trump or nullify anything else in God's Word because God is ultimately author of all of it and he's consistent. First base. First principle to have in mind. And the second principle is this. It's that we must always keep in mind that when we're dealing with difficult texts, we need to start with what is clear. What I mean by that is don't chase the tangents down the rabbit hole. Don't focus on the ambiguous issues or the novel ideas as of first importance. Start with what is clear and unambiguous and work from there. To do otherwise is to miss the wood for the trees. It's to major on the minors, which often leads to minoring on the majors. And plenty of heresy has been birthed through that process over the centuries. Lots have gone that way too. And if we're not going to make the same mistake, then we need to apply those two principles to James 5, 13 to 20. We need to hold off diving into the miraculous healings for a moment and start with what is completely clear and apparent from the text. And the first thing to notice that is abundantly clear is that this section is first and foremost focusing on the subject of prayer. Simple as that. That's not rocket science. Now, don't hear me wrong. Prayer for physical healing, that's part of it. But primarily, this passage is about prayer more generally. And we see this when we read the passage carefully in context. Look at it there in your Bible with me. Look at how many times the word prayer is used in the first couple of verses. Look how many times, and in fact, look at the variety of context it's used in. Verse 13, James asks, anyone in trouble, suffering hardship? They should pray. Second half of verse 13, similarly, if you're happy... Well, you should communicate with God through music. Literally, sing a song of praise. Sounds like a prayer. 14, if you're sick, we'll come to that word in a moment, it literally is the word for not strong. It can equally be a sickness that is, or a weakness of a physical, a mental, or a moral nature. Regardless, James's instructions, if you recognize any type of weakness or sickness, pray. Verse 15, he adds in the notion of sin now. If you find yourself guilty of sin, verse 16, the tonic again, Prayer of confession. And then in verse 17, James interestingly brings up Elijah as a model of powerful and effective prayer. Now, strangely, at this point, the context looks really weird. It's, it's something to do with the weather. We'll come back to that in a moment as well. But right now, I want you to be able to see that James's major concern is to encourage single-minded followers of Jesus to pray at all times, in all situations, about all things. 
And if we actually immediately, again, apply that first biblical reading principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture, this is hardly surprising. Because not only does James focus on the significance and the importance of prayer, not only does that fit directly in with what James has been saying, in fact, it was a section we looked at last week in James' letter, where our basic application about the issue of future planning was plan, pray, trust, repeat. <laughs> it fits with the context there, but it also entirely, is entirely consistent with the priority of prayer found throughout God's Word. If you're part of a Bible study group, you would have looked at some of these passages during the week. A couple of them will flick up on the screen, like 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul encouraging people to pray without ceasing in all circumstances. Or Ephesians 6.18, where again Paul is emphasising the appropriateness of spirit-filled prayer in all occasions. Or 1 John 5.13, where John, similar to James, highlights the significance of praying God's will with confidence especially if you see your brother or sister caught in sin, pray for them as a first priority. And of course, we've got Jesus in Matthew 6, 5, teaching his people to pray, underlining the significance of consistent, humble prayer filled with the assurance of God's wisdom and willingness to answer rightly. In other words, James's focus on the primacy of prayer is entirely consistent with the whole counsel of God's word. And so, as of first importance, working from what is abundantly clear from this passage, prayer must become a non-negotiable item in our lives too. It needs to be the first thing you do in the morning, the last thing you do in the evening, and something that happens constantly in between. Regardless of what's happening around us, because prayer rightly acknowledges our dependence on God, and it's the most, let's be honest, the most obvious, significant, and easiest way to express that privileged relationship we're invited with, uh, sorry, invited to through Christ. Now just, just think about that for a moment. Simon's touched on this already, but it bears repeating. Think about this for a moment. If we truly understand what prayer is, that is, that it isn't an invitation to commune personally with the God of the universe, with the creator of all things, who spoke creation into existence, who hung the stars and the moon, who was superintending over every aspect of every millisecond, of every minute, of every age, and who also, by the way, personally deeply cares for you. If you understand that that is what prayer is, then tell me again why you haven't got time to pray. Tell me again how it could be reasonable for you to leave this out of your day. Because the truth is, we've all got time to pray. Yes, we might be time poor, busy, stretched and pulled in a thousand different directions by a dozen different people. But that only makes prayer more pressing and necessary, doesn't it? And the simple fact is this, no matter how busy we are in life, we all make time for the things that we deem most important. And just like sleeping and eating and breathing, we need to adjust our priority thinking order to shift prayer into the essential category, not the cherry on top. Now let me just speak practically for a minute, because what I'm not saying here, I'm not talking about a, a five-hour prayer intensive every other night. I'm not even talking about three rigid-hour sessions throughout the day. I'm talking about conscious ongoing, relational conversing with God throughout your day, expressing all manner of trials and triumphs, and just the general awareness 
and the thanksgiving that he is due because he's active and present always. That's the kind of priority of prayer that James is getting at here. And like all good habits, it is a discipline to be formed and exercised. What's the saying? Nobody falls into good habits. I wish I did. <laughs> In fact, let me give you a good example, a really good practical example of what I mean here about setting up good habits. I was once talking to a minister who had a, one of their missionary partners come and preach at his church once. The missionary guy got up and spoke his piece and, yep, no dramas. At the end of the day, it was one of those, uh, you know, very nice Anglican churches. The minister stands at the back of the door, uh, you know, you know, thank you for coming, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies, I don't know. I made that last bit up. Maybe he kissed a baby, I don't know. But as the missionary guy walks out, the minister says to him, thanks for speaking, I'll pray for you. And the missionary partner looked at him and said, yeah, you will. I'll tell you when you'll do it, you'll do it every time you tie your shoelaces up. That's terrific. <laughs> it, what, what, what was just this vague notion of I pray, I'll pray for you now become an unescapable every time I tie my shoes. I can't stop thinking about this chap. <laughs> That's an excellent example of practically setting up a good habit of prayer. So moving forward, how can you proactively pray, plan? See, I love alliteration, but sometimes it stuffs me up. How can you proactively plan to make prayer a priority? What otherwise innocuous task do you daily do that could be a trigger for you to pray simply, humbly and dependently to God about whatever is precisely going on at that moment? Do you spend time driving to and from work? Turn off FM 93. Holy smokes. Carve it out as a time to pray. When you hear a siren or the care flight helicopter, that ought to signal to you that someone needs prayer. Do you spend time staring blankly at yourself in the mirror as you brush your teeth every morning and evening? Why not reclaim that as a moment to acknowledge your need for God and his goodness to you in Christ? Not just, thanks God for my good looks. That's the first thing I want you to be utterly and totally convinced of from this passage. The absolute priority, privilege and pleasure of prayer. Always. But what about the healing stuff, Tim? What about that? I can hear you thinking it. Folks, it only makes sense in the context of prayer. So let's look at this. I want to go there because we've got to look at this in context. Look at verse 14 again. It says this. Is any one of you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, what's going on here? Just read that through on its own. It's a bit chunky, isn't it? How do we move so quickly between praying for the sick people to confessing sins and forgiveness? How are those two related? Are those two related? Or is James just sort of crashing through the gears of things, all things prayerful? <laughs> Now, that's the right question to be asking first in trying to understand this passage. And when we look closely at the actual language that, Paul, uh, that James uses here, and the example of Elijah especially, the link becomes all the more apparent. Verse 14, as I already mentioned, that word often translated as sick. The Holman and the ESV get it right. I'm a Holman man all the way, let's be honest. What a, what a gem. Anyways, the Holman and the, and the uh, ESV get it right. It literally means not strong. It denotes weakness. 
As I said, that could be a mental, a spiritual, an emotional, a physical. The whole gamut of weakness options are available. That's the first thing to know. Added to this verse 15, the verse literally says that prayer of faith will save the weak person. Now, this is uber significant, folks. I can't make a big enough thing about this because the word James uses here is the sodzo word in Greek. It's the same word that lies behind the word for salvation. The prayer of faith will save the weak, the sick. Now, you need to hear me clearly because it can equally mean to save from sickness or natural danger, but it also has an eternal spiritual sense option. Let me give you a concrete example. It's used both ways in Matthew. Matthew 1, 21, it'll come up on the screen. You know the story, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, tells him to marry Mary and to name the child she bears Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Here the same word is used, but Matthew is using it in an eternal spiritual sense. James is doing the same thing. He will save the people from their sins. But Matthew in 8.25, he uses the same word again. When Jesus is asleep in the boat during a wild storm, the disciples cry out to Jesus, Lord, save us! We're going to drown! The same word is used, but this time, clearly from the context, the disciples are calling out from salvation in the temporal sense, to be saved from physical danger. That's what they're calling out for there. It's the same word. So the idea of saving can be both physical and temporal or spiritual and eternal, both the same words. And the same can be said for the phrase, will raise him up in the second half of verse 15. The Lord will raise him up. Will raise him up. It's one word in the Greek. It all has, also has a temporal, physical meaning to do with people being physically healed. In fact, this is what, how it's used in Mark 1, 31. It'll flash up on the screen. Jesus heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. He took her by the hand and raised her up. That's a physical, temporal use of the word to do, to do with sickness. But equally, when Jesus is telling his disciples about his death and resurrection, he uses the same word. In Matthew 17, 23, they will kill him and on the third day he will be raised up to life. The same word. This time the raising up is in an eternal sense, not just a healing a person from a temporary illness, but resurrecting them to new life. The phrase cuts both ways. As an aside, it's the same with the word healed in 16. It can be healed or restored, both physical or eternal. Sorry, physical, temporal, spiritual, eternal. But what I'm trying to get you to see here, what I'm hoping that you're seeing here, is that this passage about prayer is concerned with a much wider scope than just physical healing. It's not not about physical healing. I know you like double negative, Sarah. It's not not about physical hearing. That is to say, physical hearing is not absent. It's absolutely included. But our English translations often do us a disservice if they unhelpfully narrow the scope to make it seem as though this is exclusively about physical hearing. James, I think, is deliberately using words that take in the temporal eternal, the physical, the spiritual, because prayer is right and effective for both. In fact, It's only by recognising this that the whole concept or the whole issue of sin and confession makes sense in this section. It's why James can so seamlessly go from talking about saving the weak in verse 15 to if he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Because that's what he's talking about. He's not crashing through the gears. This makes perfect sense when you realise his concern is both physical and spiritual with a bigger emphasis on the spiritual, on the healing and the restoration that comes for the weak 
in sin. Now, why do I say that? Why am I pushing for you to read this with an understanding or a greater understanding and emphasis on the eternal spiritual sense of healing, of restoration and salvation? Well, there's several reasons. Let me do them briefly and quickly. The first is actually verse 15 itself. And the prayer offered in faith will make the weak, sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Just look at that statement again. That is a categorical statement that James is making here. He does not expect or allow any notion of failure. On that score alone, he can't be referring exclusively to physical sickness and healing for the simple fact that the mortality rate is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago, still hovering around about precisely 100%. (laughs) What I mean is, eventually you will experience a sickness or a lack of strength that you won't physically get well from. Eventually, a physical sickness, weakness will kill you. It doesn't mean every sickness will kill you. We saw last week, pray for good health, trust God's will for your life, but don't pretend to know what his will for your life is or that it isn't some form of sickness working in and on and through it. Now that sounds weird, but as an aside, I spoke to several people last week who made that connection personally. I spoke to more than one person who came to me telling me about a sickness that they've had in their life or have in their life that they did not ask for, they did not plan for, but they are now recognising it as part of God's way to grow them in dependence and trust of him and his way for using them in service for his kingdom as they shared the gospel with people that they would otherwise never have met in the doctor's surgery, in the hospital room, in the cancer centre. Friends, that's fantastic, isn't it? Is there anything more God-glorifying than praising his name, knowing and sharing his hope at your lowest ebb with those who are likewise at the lowest ebb? Praise God that in his wisdom and mercy, he even uses sickness to grow his people and his kingdom. But that's an aside. Back to the issue at hand. The second reason this passage should not be read as a categorical guarantee of physical healing is that we know from God's word that physical healing is not always his will. This is that first principle we talked about again. This is scripture interpreting scripture. We see it in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul describes a thorn in his flesh. It's not a physical thorn, but it is some tangible, physical, mental, or spiritual, I don't know. It's some tangible issue that he clearly doesn't enjoy. In fact, verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. In other words, Paul prayed for healing. He prayed for restoration. He prayed for relief from this thorn in the temporal, physical sense. And what was God's response? No. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, it was not God's will to heal or restore him on this occasion or to relieve this thorn in any way, shape or form. Rather, it was God's will to teach and use Paul through the thorn. And if that's not enough, friends, then thirdly, and I think most significantly, the reason to read this section of James with an emphasis on the spiritual, eternal sense of the weakness, healing, saving and restoration is the example of Elijah. Now, I haven't left myself much time to do this, so you're going to have to do some reading at home to follow this up a bit more closely. But James's specific use of Elijah as the example of the powerful, effective prayer of a righteous person, it is extremely instructive on this issue. Write down 1 Kings 17 and 18. Read it when you get home. 
you'll get the full gist of it then. But what I want you to realize is that James had options about which of Elijah's prayers to use as his example to reinforce his point. If he wanted to emphasize physical healing as his primary concern, then he could have very easily, powerfully and convincingly used Elijah's prayer in 1 Kings 17, 17 to 23. Read it for yourself. It essentially goes like this. Elijah staying with a widow and her son. The son gets sick. He gets sicker. He gets sicker and he dies. Elijah prays to God and the boy is raised to life, physically restored. Now, if James was convinced or trying to convince us that physical healing was the primary concern of prayer in his letter, this is the Elijah example to go for, isn't it? It's there on a silver platter. This is what he's talking about. But he doesn't. Why? It's because he's not his major point. In fact, what example does he go for? He goes for the example of Elijah's prayer earlier in 1 Kings 17.1 when God causes him to pray for a drought to come on Israel. That's the weather thing we talked about earlier. Now, why would God do that? Why pray for a drought? Because this was the means he would use to confront Israel for their double-minded apostasy. Elijah's prayer for drought was the mechanism God would use to teach Israel and King Ahab that their attempts to be friends with the pagan world by joining in the worship of the Baals was to make themselves an enemy of God. Sound familiar? That's James 4, isn't it? Elijah prayed for drought so that Israel would realize who they needed to depend on for rain. And it's Yahweh alone. And that God was doing this for Israel's own good to restore them to a trusting relationship with him. This is what we see in 1 Kings 18.37. When there's a showdown between the prophets of Baal and Elijah, Elijah prays, he prays this, Answer me, Yahweh, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then only a few verses later, as the people respond rightly, he prays for rain and it pours. Please read 1 Kings 17 and 18 to get the full picture. But the point is this. Faithful prayer in line with God's will is powerful and effective. And God's will is for people to quit being double-minded and instead to turn to him with their whole hearts for the healing, the restoration and the salvation that Christ has made available through his death and resurrection. And that far outstrips in our ways any sense of temporal healing. Friends, it's why Jesus came to earth. When he came, he didn't come first and foremost as a doctor or a physical healer. He would have had a cracking practice. He wouldn't have even had to bulk bill and he would have had a line out the door. You think about it. In that story that Sarah mentioned, it's not that he cannot or does not heal people at times. Don't think that it's beyond his care or concern, but it's not first and foremost why he came. In fact, you see in Mark 1 that sometimes he stops. Actually, he leaves a village that has still got sick and dying people because he says, I've got to go to other villages and preach. That's why I've come. He came first as a sin bearer to turn Israel back to God to provide a healing and a restoration that extends beyond death. And it's by prayerful dependence in all circumstances that we express and access this hope. Now, a super quick word of application. Man, I'm so far over. But as you realize, I realize this has been a bit heavy and a bit heady trying to work out some of the translation issues. And I don't want you to leave here unaware of practical outworkings personally. So let me quickly, first of all, leave here knowing this. 
you either have or you will experience physical sickness in your life. I'm not a prophet. I don't need a crystal ball to work that one out. And when you do, you should share those struggles with your Christian brothers and sisters. You should consider whether your sickness is related to particular sin in your life. It may not be, but it's a question worth asking. And confess it before God, seek his forgiveness and his restoration spiritually at the same time as praying for healing physically, trusting that God is able to heal in every sense of the word. And while he doesn't promise you physical restoration now, he has promised you spiritual and physical restoration eternally through Jesus for all who turn to him. And then see your doctor. Don't forget that step. God has wonderfully gifted individuals with the brains and the abilities to be doctors and nurses and nurses and healthcare professionals, and he's generously put you in a space where you have good access to them. Don't spurn his gift. You want a little boiled down phrase again, a little one-liner like last week? Pray, confess, trust, and see your doctor. And in fact, on that score, let me give one little last application, especially for the doctors and the nurses and the health workers that we have here at WEC. I often joke that I couldn't throw a rock in this place without hitting someone who works in health. One day I'm going to try that theory out. Watch out, you folks in the middle. Um, but can I make a specific suggestion for you folk? Praise God for the gifts and the abilities he's given you. Study hard, work diligently, but above all, be healers who know the healer. Don't forget to pray for your patients, even with your patients if you're able. I actually had a doctor in Sydney, the most magnificent chap. He was a cracking good doctor, but every time I saw him, we prayed together at the end. It was magnificent. Didn't fix me up on all the issues, plainly, but he prayed with me. It was excellent. Don't, and, and don't just pray for their physical health. Please do that, but pray for their spiritual restoration too. Because even someone who gets better now is still going to stand before God one day in judgment. Death comes, and what counts is spiritual fitness and forgiveness found in Christ alone. Pray for your patience. Friends, we're going to do something now, in fact, that we usually do at the end of every sermon series. Before I pray, we're going to do that actually. Sorry, we are going to pray. We're going to, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But I want to give you the opportunity to put into practice what we've just heard. I actually want to give you a minute or two for silent reflection and prayer, just between you and God, where you are. As you reflect on maybe the series of James as a whole, Maybe you're realizing there's things you need to confess before him. Maybe there's need for repentance, an area where you realize you've been double-minded. Maybe it's the time just to thank God for his grace to you in Christ, to praise him quietly in your heart. Friends, maybe you're sick. Maybe there's people you know who are sick. Pray. Trust God's wisdom that he's working out his plans and purposes for you even in and through illness. Take that time. I'm going to give you a minute or so and I'll explain what we do next with the Lord's Supper.